Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On this week's New Statesman podcast, Stephen and I discuss Brexit and the Northern Irish border. Where are those 56, 57, who knows Brexit position papers? And we ask, is the Legatum Institute sinister or just wrong? So, Stephen, let's talk about... You know what we should talk about. We should talk about Brexit. We should talk about Brexit. So I did an event with Nick Clegg at the Cambridge Literary Festival, which is sponsored by the New Statesman, at the weekend. And he said, look, where he feels that Brexit will pan out will be that you'll get essentially these things called heads of agreement. So broad kind of like, and we will sort this out and we will do this and everything will be great uh, when it comes before Parliament for a vote. And MPs will essentially vote on that. And then the idea then will be that all of the kind of really difficult stuff is going to be ironed out during the transition period. And I said, isn't the one exception to that, the Northern Irish border, because you can't fudge it. You can't just go, and something will happen with the Northern Irish border. And that's why they've become completely stuck on it and fixated on it. But but it it says something very, very bad about the future negotiations on Brexit, because it says that actually underneath all this hand-waving, everyone's pretending that there are lots of places where you can get an agreement. There are some really hard decisions left to be made. And if this one is this intractable. There are probably other ones that MPs will unwittingly sign off on and we'll have to try and accomplish during the transition agreement when we'll have even less leverage than we do now because we'll be outside and, you know, YOLO. Yeah, I mean, so I think this was a significant week because it's the week which exposed what we kind of suspected anyway, right? But it, it exposed that Brexit is fundamentally not a serious political project, right? At the moment, we share a land border with a nation which is in the same free trade agreement as us. That means we have the same regulatory arrangement, the same customs arrangement, etc., etc. That means it is effectively a non-existent border. The second you leave, aforementioned free trade agreement, the border between those two nations changes. The whole of the EU then has an interest in its external border being protected and enforced. Well, also just because of the way the WTO works, right? You 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 aren't allowed to kind of go like, oh, okay, this magical border, we're going to treat it slightly differently from all of our other borders. Also, if you assume, and I think there's an this is a big assumption, right? But if you want to leave the customs union, and seeing as it is very hard to make an argument then the desire to leave the customs union was a particular driver of referendum uh, votes in in the referendum on the doorsteps it was yeah. huge 
it is you know effectively solely a kind of preoccupation of the Conservative Party. The bonanza you think is available must surely be about regulatory diversion, different customs and excise regimes, which means it is in the United Kingdom's economic interests, if there is a benefit to be gained from leaving the customs union, to have a hard border, whether it's on the island of Ireland or in the Irish Sea. But this idea that it's like, oh, well, we're not going to put a border up, ignoring the many WTO-based reasons why that is not the case. But ultimately, this is like the definition of a known known we know that the United Kingdom has a border with the Republic of Ireland. Again, this is not should not be news to anyone in the Brexit elite. We know that the Republic of Ireland ultimately, as with all member states of the 27, can veto the final agreement. We know that the EU always, regardless of who it is negotiating with, sides with its members against the third country, which is what we are becoming. So any kind of plan for the Brexit negotiations... I mean, it's not like, say, if in a couple of months the Brexit negotiations came unstuck because there was political instability in Holland and Mm -hmm. there was a fresh election and a new government came to power on a make Britain pay. I mean, which is unlikely because the Netherlands is one of the other countries and is most. But this is exactly the same thing, isn't it? As the, oh, Germany's in crisis meme that has kind of been going around. And actually, um, Fred Studeman in the FT has written a magnificent piece about the fact that he's really, um, his family are German. He's very excited to know that British commentators are all now massive, massive German experts and they know exactly how terrible things are in, in Germany right now. But, you know, again, it was entirely foreseeable that the German elections might lead to a coalition that might, might take some time to negotiate, right? I mean, these were things that were said before Article 50 was triggered. Well, there won't be any real progress made while the French and German elections are happening. I mean, this is just yet another one of a series of, of completely avoidable missteps. Yeah, I think this one is a bigger misstep and I say this to someone who didn't think they should trigger Article 50 until those elections were out of the way, because I can at least see the argument for going, a centre-right politician will win the French elections. Depending on how you feel about Emmanuel Macron, that prediction may or may not, in fact, have turned out to come true. Yeah, a centre-right politician from the UMP or whatever it's calling itself this week will win the French elections, and Angela Merkel will emerge as leader of a coalition in Germany in fairly short order. And it does still look as if in terms of the historic length of time for a coalition negotiation, actually Germany will get a coalition fairly swiftly. Those things were all kind of fairly predictable, and you maybe make the argument that in the first stage it will all be kind of civil service and the politics stuff only comes into its own in the future relationship stage. But the Irish border is just different because you at some point do have to have an answer. Actually, the the problem isn't that intractable. You either have a hard border with the economic hit to both the Republic, the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, and the political consequences of that, or you remain in the customs union and you have a close regulatory relationship. Or you presumably put borders at the ports and you essentially reunify Ireland, Um, which is one that, unsurprisingly enough, quite a few people in Ireland are not that keen on. Yeah, I mean, Northern Ireland. The fascinating thing about about this week, again, in terms of, yeah, it's showing that the Brexit elite doesn't seem to take the project entirely seriously, is, is one this kind of inability to understand what must surely be seen as the opportunities of leaving the customs union. But two, I am increasingly confused as to what the Brexit elite wants from this process. So you have opposition to the idea of a Canada-style trade deal. But if you have regulatory divergence, then you cannot end up with a Norway-style arrangement. You have to end up with a more bare-bones Canada-style arrangement with the economic 
damage than that entails because that gives you greater political freedom. And if you don't want that, then that's fine. But then I don't understand why you don't want the EEA. And if you don't want the EEA because you want something even deeper, it's, it's just... Like, I think you want to have your cake and eat it. That's the point, isn't it? You want. I think the thing I found unnerving is I thought the cake and eat it was kind of like a sort of clever rhetorical game to win the referendum. And it is becoming terrifyingly clear that actually a critical mass of the Conservative Party does believe that this is a an achievable Yeah, because aim. I remember you writing a piece when we were doing our, our Brexit special edition about, you know, the fact that the most significant thing was Michael Gove saying, actually, yes, we'd come out of the single market. And that being a kind of thing that was, it felt like he had made that decision almost sort of on the hoof during the campaign itself, that this was the official vote leave position, right? And that, that's how I remember it, which indicates that they really were not thinking that deeply about things, or they were thinking about what, you know, what we need to say is obviously immigration has turned into this big thing. So, you know, we need to to kind of just be able to definitively have the answer to the, to the end of that. So that's the vote leave position now. I think that's a bit unflattering to vote leave because in terms of the button they knew they had to press i.e. immigration and in terms of the political problem and i don't want to get all very real concerns about it because i think those concerns are are not based in fact and you you can't really base policy making on people's feels nonetheless the political problem of, of britain's eu membership in terms of it gaining mass support is the free movement of labor and in terms of what the referendum meant you can kind of take the opinion of well i'm still against it and therefore i think political parties which are against it should just say well if you want to Im implement it you're going to have to vote for someone else k thanks bye but i can kind of see why you put the single market on the table it feels fairly clear to me that single market membership was what the referendum hinged on and there is at least some awareness of the thing that britain wants than it's getting out of that i wants not to be subject to the free movement of labor now if we were going into these brexit talks with the position of look basically the problem of our relationship with the eu is free movement what is it we can pay and give to get the closest to EU membership without this problem? Then negotiations would be in a very different place. But but that comes back to the fact that we still don't know what the government's preferred end state is. In fact, we don't even know what Brexiteers' preferred end state is. Priti Patel made her first appearance in public life since being sacked at a spectator event last night, night before. I can't quite remember what that will be in podcast listener time. And she basically went, the government isn't clear on what the end state was, and then didn't see fit to describe what her preferred And then she also state. said, I also don't think we should pay any money, they should all sod off or something like that, which is a kind of like, okay, well, yeah, but you know, then that has consequences of its own. Can we talk a minute about the 56, 57, who knows how many Brexit papers, which are the subject of the row this week. Tell me if I'm misstating what happened, which is I feel that at some point, David Davis was asked about whether or not he'd done sectoral assessments. He went, "Yeah, I've got, I've got, pa I've got papers coming out of the wazoo back there," and people said, "Oh, can we see the the papers in your wazoo, Mister Davis?" And at that point, he went, uh, "I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say there were sectoral assessments so much as broad outlines." And then basically, the government has, or the Dexy department has, had to kind of cobble together some sheets of A4 and some few bits of Microsoft Excel, and then maybe a couple of slides with an organogram, which is what you always do to pad out a presentation, and has now released essentially a few charts yeah i mean so the impact assessments thing is weird because one as you say uh basically it appears than what happened was david davis went yeah sure we've got loads other brexit ministers have also kind of said yeah sure we've got loads but the thing about impact assessments in general not just when they're brexit related is that they tend to be fairly shonky because they tend to be politically motivated so they are the kind of thing which generates an awful lot of paperwork because you have civil servants going 
so look, if I've been told that I have to produce an assessment showing that not decriminalizing drugs is going to be better for long term getting people off of it, then I need to be instructed that this is what's going to happen. Because if I look at the data, you're not going to like what I get back. So it, them being fairly shonky is par for the course. The slightly weird thing about the impact assessments, Rao, is that, and again with the whole kind of, oh no, you can't see our secret plans that the British government has going, there are impact assessments, detailed impact assessments, of the impacts of a no-deal Brexit and various trade deals, both still available on the Treasury's website from the assessment they produced for George Osborne before the referendum, and on the European Parliament's website since then in English, it just I, comes down to whether or not you believe them, right? I mean, that's the kind of interesting thing is that you, you know, we all know that the any economist, well, ninety nine out of a hundred economists, maybe more, would tell you that a no deal Brexit will be catastrophic across a number of industries. We already know that the Brexiteers don't believe that; they think there's all too much doom and gloom, and we're not looking on the bright side. So I don't know why you would think that actually just seeing a piece of paper produced in Whitehall would would kind of finally, is if you know D- Jacob Rees Mogg suddenly going to clutch his desk and go, oh my God, I was wrong. I would have been wrong all along. And the other subplot in this is there are a lot of civil servants who feel incredibly demoralised and dispirited because they feel that they literally cannot do their jobs without being told they're part of Project Fear. I mean, so to take leaving the customs union, the subject of so much present discontent, all economic theory, right, regardless of whether are you, you are a kind of like throffing three trader or, you know, the most sort of, you know, like kind of like a Marxist who believes Marxist theory stopped in 1848, right? All of those schools of economics would broadly conclude that if you leave the customs union, there is at least a period before you you get any new trade deals when the economy gets worse, right? It, it is just open and shut. However, this is controversial, bizarrely, in the one place in the country where anyone wants to leave the customs union, i.e. Westminster and Whitehall. So that's the other reason why the impact assessments are shonky. Well, I have to say, this has really cheered me up, Stephen. I, I feel like I'm, you know, Brexit is going a lot better than I thought at the start of this segment. I will make a success of it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And next, let's address perhaps the second most interesting question in British politics, which is, what are Labour up to these days? Um, you know, they're just biding their time. Now, I mean, it's... So they've got this slight problem that there are, by my count, I think five views about Brexit within the Labour Party. I'm not going to commit to listing all of them because I'll, I always miss one, right? But broadly ranging from it's a disaster, repeal it, through, I guess, to it's a disaster, we have to do it, through to it's not a disaster, it'll be brilliant, full steam ahead, right? To and, we should try and stay in the single market, yeah. to we should we can't definitely can't stay in the single market because we have to end freedom, we should try and stay in the customs union. And then about three of those positions are well represented in 
the inner circle, yeah, kind of not just the leader's office, but the various offices of, of the core for participants. There's something else going on, though, isn't there, which is a kind of version of your thing that you always say about, you know, not interrupting your enemy when they're making a mistake. There is a kind of tactical feeling that this is the process is all going really badly and actually if you're labor the best thing you can do is just stand at the sidelines going this is all going really badly but not intervening any really any more than that yeah and i think one of the interesting shifts and if the mbs who do listen to this podcast feel this is unrepresentative of the mood in the plp do just you know drop me a line but it feels that among the mps i've spoken to recently after the election there was a mood of okay tory mps keep saying that they want a softer Brexit. Let's see the colour of their money. There is now, I'd say, quite a strong feeling in the Labour Party that ultimately Conservative Remainers are just not worth... All mouth, no trousers. Yeah, yeah. And so the only thing that Labour can do by trying to soften Brexit is make life difficult for MPs in, in heavily leave seats. They feel they can't actually stop it. That feels like it's becoming the... So it feels the majority opinion in the PLP and... I think probably, although I, again, would need to do this in a more scientific way to feel confident, you know, in Team Corbyn is it's going over the cliff. The Tory promises cannot be reconciled with reality. We actually can't stop the car going over the cliff. So the the point now is to ostentatiously move as far from the wheel as possible. But because the government has no other policy agenda other than domestic violence, where basically Labour will, I imagine, end up voting for the final bill. Yeah, um, well, I did an event with Jess Phillips again at the Cambridge Literature Festival, and she said the funny thing is, you know, there lots of stuff is being kind of crept onto that that isn't anything to do with domestic violence, because it is the only big piece of legislation that's that's going through in this parliamentary session that's not related to Brexit. And so that kind of means that Labour has kind of reverted to sort of like Bagpuss style slumber. That's adorable. But okay, I take your point. I think that's a real shame though. I mean, I know I harp on about this a lot because of reading Harriet Harman's memoir this summer, but you know, the stuff that she did about NHS waiting time, say, during some of those pretty dark days during the 80s, being an opposition is a job in itself, kind of scrutinising the government's policies, holding the government to account, pointing out the flaws in government's policies. I mean, you mentioned in your column this week, universal credit, which you know, Philip Hammond has has rolled over on to some extent. He's cut the waiting time by seven days. That was in the budget. So therefore, you know, essentially as close as you're going to get to him admitting that it was hurting people and, you know, it was it was a badly designed policy in that sense. But Labour are getting no credit whatsoever for that. Yeah, I think it is not a controversial statement within the sort of top of the Labour Party, Corbyn sceptic, Corbynite, to say that Debbie Abrams has not set the world alight as shadow uh, welfare secretary. The problem, though, comes to the fact that Jeremy doesn't like firing people. I mean, he hasn't even fired Nia Griffith, who basically kind of... Brutal article about his shortcomings over the rail and, uh, fair free no, stuff. No, not oh, no. That's uh, I'm getting Lillian confused. Aren't I? Lillian Nian Griffith is the shadow defence secretary who basically, in the days of of the election, was just like, "Well, Jeremy's not defence secretary." Emily's not defence secretary. If I want to turn a city into glass, you better believe I will do. Um, you know, like he he hasn't even moved against people like that, right? Let alone this idea of people who maybe not, you know, it's not like Debbie Abrams shares all of his politics. But, but someone who's just real... been kind of innocuous and invisible is not going to get fired by Jeremy Corbyn anytime soon. No, and I think you've got two opposing problems. I'm not sure if I've said this before, so stop me if I have, in that the Tory cabinet's got too many old stages who've been washing around for a long time, and the Labour shadow cabinet's got the exact opposite problem, which is too many people who just don't know their way around a you know dispatch box or a uh, you know Andrew Neil interview yet. And, and therefore, you do think that the burden is falling disproportionately heavily on... Emily Thornbury, 
Barry Gardner, Angela Rayner, John Ashworth. And Keir Starmer. And Keir I mean, Starmer. I think the, the interesting move is, you know, if after 2019 uh, the post of Brexit Secretary vanishes and seeing as it is widely seen to have been a disaster on Whitehall to create Dexu, that may happen. The logical move then is to move uh, Keir Starmer, who has shown that he's good at that kind of, you know, very forensic bit of like, here's a stress point, I will push stress point, would be to move him to shadow uh, welfare because it's kind of the other big post and you can't, I can't work out where else you'd create a job for him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, justice would be another great place for him given his background as uh, as a lawyer and also because I think there's a lot of stuff to be done cross-party there actually. Um, you know, David Liddington is a relatively sensible, straight, you know, he's not a, an ideologue from what I can make out and, and, and there's a great deal of agreement across the parties about the things that are wrong in the prison system. But um, yeah, I just think it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit, it must feel quite, there must feel like quite a lot of heavy lifting among the few people who do go out and do the media rounds and stuff like that, because they just haven't got a very deep bench, which you can either blame on the coup, you know, and, and, the, and the resignations, or you can, as you say, blame in the fact that the only person that Jeremy Corbyn's brought back, mysteriously, the only person that Jeremy Corbyn's brought back is Owen Smith, who stood against him. But he has given him the nightmare post of Northern Ireland. So... Maybe that was his kind of karmic punishment. And now it's time for... A segment we like to call... You Ask Us. Yeah, you do ask us. People have been asking us about the Legatum Institute, which was named in a front page during the Mail on Sunday, am I getting this right? As being the kind of shadowy think tank behind Boris Johnson and Michael Goh's letter to Theresa May saying, come on, get on with Brexit. What are you doing? What are you lagging around with? My problem with it is, I think it's interesting to talk about think tanks generally because they are, people don't really understand what they do. I mean, often, they, sometimes even they don't understand what they do. And so shadowy is a word that's very easy to apply to them because they don't really come out, you know, come out and, and sort of state their objectives. But I, yeah, I, I, I mean, as, as far as I understand it, this is a think tank that is run by Philippa Stroud. Yeah. Who was at the DWP with Ian Duncan Smith, which instantly I had to make in my mind, I go, duh, 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 duh. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an evil think tank. Yeah, I mean, so I think the following things about Legatum are true. One, I would say it has a disproportionate influence on government, considering the quality of a lot of its output. I mean, these are the people whose solution to the Irish border is Zeppelins. However, given the very long kind of rap sheet, sounds overly pejorative, but I'm feeling pejorative today. Given the long rap sheet of bad opinions, and in the specific case of the Mail on Sunday allegation, support for a Brexit, which is what Vladimir Putin wants, right? These people have supported it for a lot longer than they've been at Legatum. Now, yes, I'm certain that to the extent that Putin has heard of any of these people, he's like, wow, thanks. I'm really, thank you for being useful idiots for this. However, it doesn't feel that there is any evidence that the people involved really believe this stuff. Motley, because they have that slightly weird thing that a lot of right-wing think tanks have, where they go, here's Anne Applebaum talking about how bad Putin is. And then she goes, yeah, the best way to combat that is to stay in the EU. And it's like, did you say something, Anne? Unheard has done that. Legatum has done... Like, they, they all have got this weird double think where they just refuse to accept that their passion project of 30 years and their foreign policy thing of, oh, we can't, we've got to be tough on Putin, just can't be reconciled with one another. I think people should be worried about what Legatum do because their ideas are wrong and that their influence in this government shows that the government's priorities are wrong. But they're sinister because they're wrong, not because they've been given rubles. Well, let me ask you a, a similar but related question, which is, 
Stephen, should there be a museum of communist atrocities? I mean, I'm all for museums, but... That's very true, actually. I went to the um, Russian Revolution, the, uh, the Re- Russian Revolution exhibition at the RA this year, and actually, the thing that it had in the last room after all this you know, incredible art from this, both before the revolution and, and after it, then they had a bit. They had a box that you went and sat in, and it showed you lots of the artists that you'd just seen the work from, their mugshots from when they were taken to a gulag and when they and how they died. Yeah, I mean, I know this is like literally the most bougie thing I've ever said on a podcast, which let's face it has quite a lot of bougie I mean, yeah, okay, statements made on it. Yeah. But the other day I was listening to a nice piece of Shostakovich on Radio 3. Yeah. And then they go, yeah, Shostakovich spent large parts of his life becoming an unperson during the Soviet Union. And also, you know, without wishing to put too fine a point on it, museums tend to cover one of two things, something a country has done or something a country has nicked. Britain has never done communism and it has never invaded a communist country successfully. So where You better be so confident about that statement. I can just feel someone going, oh, actually, in 1951, we were technically in charge of i guess actually yeah we were involved in the korean war but basically i I am i am i'm dubious as to what would be in this museum right yeah we didn't go over and Um, like invade russia plunder all its stuff and then bring it back in the british museum as we have done with other civilizations the reason why we don't have a museum of communism is the same reason we don't need have we don't have a museum of fascism which is that both of those movements have not taken power or produced a great deal of paraphernalia. Although I'm not saying all those museums would not would be second tier. I'm all for more museums. I just think this idea that if we had one, then, you know, kind of suddenly the conservatives would surge to 48% of the polls. People would go, oh, yeah, I was annoyed about this lost decade. But now I've heard about a little fellow called Chairman Mao, and I'm suddenly really into the real my wages being lower than they were in 2007. Finally, what's your favourite weird museum in London? Oh, the Grant Museum. Uh, it's part of UCL. It's got uh, uh, moles in a jar. My partner and I went uh, to it for our second date because I am strange. This is worse than your proposal story. My proposal story is very sweet. But anyway, it's a good museum. What's your favourite museum? Well, I, I really like the Bart's Pathology Museum, which has got like a sort of intestines and stuff like that. But um, And I'm weird? Yeah, well, it's a great museum. It's got a lot of tumours. But I went to a very interesting museum when I was recently in Amsterdam called Micropia, which is the Museum of Microbes. And I got to see some tardigrades, which are awesome and will outlive us all. So actually, we should, if anything, be training them to run museums for when civilization falls. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Now, a man on the internet misrepresented what I said on the podcast two weeks ago, leading to a pile-on by King of the Sea Lions, Glenn Greenwald. He then said that he listens to the podcast for Stephen, quote, like everyone else. So, I've spoken to Caroline. If you would like to get a track that purely takes Stephen's recording, just his channel, cuts me out altogether, email caroline.crampton at newstatesman.co.uk with the subject line, I'm a massive sexist and I don't like listening to women's voices. Goodbye. Goodbye.